Good evening. We thought tonight we would endeavor to pick up some of the questions from the notes that have come during the week, uh, questions that you've asked us. And um, I'll begin by picking up some of the pieces of paper and endeavoring to respond. And depending how long that takes, I may hand over to my two brothers here. And the reason I had to leave, I don't know if you noticed, I left, is because I'm still getting used to the fact that I can't see things very well. You know, one of these aging things. It's not, I'm not short-sighted, it's that, that thing that happens somewhere in your 40s, and I'm still getting used to knowing that I need them, haven't quite caught up with myself. So, yeah, let's see. <clears throat> So the first question, I won't read um, everything the person has written, but the gist of it is, if everything is fleeting, what's the point? Okay, it rings a bell with a few of you. <laughs> okay. And then saying, any urge that I have to do something, I can quell by asking, what's the point? All right. And another part of the question said, if everything's transient, who cares? And it wasn't a who cares, but it's a sincere question. What is the point? What can, we, what can we discover about that? I think this isn't uncommon that people may bump into this question along the way. It's not a final resting place. It's a question that come, may come along the way when we've invested the point in the things material things or even inner things, we've invested that they're the point, right? Having them or experiencing them or... And then we come to practice and we're told and we see for ourselves, actually all those things that we've invested in externally or internally, they change. And then it can throw us into a question, so then what's the point? If the point isn't that I can find my refuge in things, what's the point? What's the point in things? And what's the point at all? We seek meaning, of course we do. We're meaning-seeking creatures, in a way. And one of the, th the ways that I like to look at it is that f in Dharma teachings, we're exploring the way the separate self keeps forming, the way that we're um, concocting and building and fabricating different identities of um, who we think we ultimately are based on patterning. These are the shapes we live within, the, like the sort of separate houses of self, that when we see through those, then we search for meaning in things. The separate self searches for meaning through trying to get things, have things, even meditative things or spiritual things. We seek the belonging through the separate self, but the separate self can never really be fulfilled. Not because of a horrible cosmic joke, but actually through a, a lawful and mysterious and marvelous process. The separate self in practice is what starts to relax. 
So when we're seeking our meaning and our belonging through that separate self, we keep bumping in to a dead end. That's my experience and I imagine for some of you. Yes, the separate self or the perce- perception of that when we're looking out through the world or looking at ourselves from that perspective doesn't arrive at fulfillment. And we lose the sense of wonder and the natural sense of belonging. That maybe you start to touch or maybe you know very well and maybe that's why you come back to practice that as something relaxes, something sheds, when we get a bit more courage, a bit more mindfulness of body under our belt, so to speak, faith in the practice, faith in sangha, faith in refuges, as that separate self rests, we glimpse the awe and the wonder and the natural belonging where the seeking can come to rest. And this is meaningful for us. This is meaningful. It's not a meaning we have to strive for, it's a meaning that we return to we could say. Then what becomes the meaning is that self, or this, this one in this location, this being that I call, could still call myself, becomes or is a, as one of my teachers says, that it ceases to be a competition to have and to get and to be better than or, and this location becomes a meeting place life becomes a meeting place of inner and outer. Life becomes a meeting place of all the causes and conditions that have so far arisen, have so far um, kind of informed and toppled into this moment. A meeting place of self and other, the appearance of self and other. And this has meaning, this has wonder. This has awe and this has belonging. I don't know if this fits here, but I found this quote from Joseph Campbell. He says, (laughs) it doesn't sound good to begin with. He says, life has no meaning. He says, but each of us has meaning and we bring it to life through our interrelationship. Somebody wrote, so about life and about insight, now you see it, now you have the insight, what to do about it, right? What to do about it. I've seen into things a bit more, somewhat, what to do about that? It's a great question, isn't it? What to do about our insights? So insights aren't to collect or gather as another possession. Hurrah! <laughs> Although we might like to have our little shelf and put them on with our swimming certificate. And all. <laughs> Would you like one? Would you like it? <clears throat> we might like to do that. 
But it's, it's, this, is where it be- this is where the path begins. And insight opens our view at many different levels. It opens our view about who we are personally, collectively, globally, mysteriously. It opens our view. And as we know view, well, as you may know, view is, our view informs our intention, right? And it informs our action. And it informs our effort and what we put our life energy into. View on the Dharma path um, heads up the path. Right? So right view, in the case of the Eightfold Path, right view to understand cause and effect, to understand that we're an open system. Right? That there is no separate thing here that has no influence on what happens over there. No, everything influences everything else. Okay, as I start to see that in small or big ways through my practice, might be in the way that somebody said, I've seen, wow, my life has been a collection of trying to acquire things. This is what they wrote on the note. And I kind of see the emptiness of that. Didn't take me to where I wanted it to. Didn't bring the fulfillment. I have that insight. What to do about it? Don't acquire more things. <laughs> right. on, on one level, right? It didn't bring me the fulfillment. So we can practice with it. It doesn't mean we can't take care of ourselves or any of that. But what it does say is, okay, let that insight inform my intention. If I understand that the accumulation hasn't brought me what I want, and this is that one person's uh, requ- uh, question, then I make intentions based on that knowing that will inform my action. If I just know it, and I've seen it deeply at IMS to some degree, um, or I may have really got that I'm not in this on my own, I may have felt that tremble along with each one here, or some of us here, or the squirrel, right? I, feel, I can tell, I got that. It's not just, uh, not just intellectual, it's also my deeper knowledge of trembling along with. Then we need, we're asked to live with intentions that are faithful to that view. Does that make sense? So live in such a way and make intentions in such a way that even if I don't always feel it, even if I don't always know it, that what I have seen when the veils open a bit more, which they do here, that what I have seen most deeply I remain faithful to as best I can by putting intentions and actions in place. For our insights to become transformative, we need to work them, live them, use them. Even if not every morning we feel like it, one morning we might wake up and the veils are over our eyes again, metaphorically. Oh no, I don't want to tremble along with everyone, everything. It's too much. It's too much. I feel too much of the world and its beauty and its pain. But can I live according to that understanding nonetheless? If my insight here is about stopping and being still and giving time for myself that I really need that 
to steady and open. We need to live that. So that's the gist. We need to live that insight. And for that we need support, sangha, people that help remind us without telling us, without making it one of these awful things that can happen with beautiful insights, can happen with religions and can happen with us. That what's that what opened us as something ennobling and bright and sincere then becomes a memory and another stick to beat ourselves with. Right? Oh, well, you said you were going to tremble along with everyone. You're not doing very well with that, are you? Right? No. Our practice needs sanctuary, it needs protection. It need this garden. Somebody said in an interview yesterday, said this, I get it, this chitter's like a garden. It's like, this, this can grow stuff, right? And he said, I'm really excited about what can be grown here, right? Do that work. Then it's beautiful. Then it remains. It stays in the realm of the wonder and the love and the awe. Even if we don't always feel that, we act in accordance with that. And then it, the garden grows, garden grows. More volume? Do we need more volume? Yeah? Could we have a little more volume? Um. It's on its max. <laughs> it's one another one of those mic stories. <laughs> okay, I'll speak a bit louder. Okay, maybe just a couple more. Um, I've probably asked too late, but can you explain what the Buddha meant when he said the body in the body? Um, so here's one of the ways that's quoted from the text, from the Satipatthana Sutta. It says, in this way, one abides contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. In this way, one abides contemplating the body as body, or body in body, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. I, th I, love, I love the clarity of that teaching. And what I understand this to mean is that the Buddha is pointing us to be in relationship with body, not as an object, not as a thing we're observing or objectifying, but body in body. There's a kind of an immediacy unmediated by our concept. Concepts can be there. Of course, it's a body, and it's called Catherine for the time being. And, right? That's okay. But it's not mediated. My sitting and breathing is immediate. And in that moment of knowing that, this is body as body. It's not mine, and neither is it not mine. It takes us again back into that realm of the mystery of these bodies, while they're alive, are animated, right? They're kind of propped up by this life force and they are available for meeting, for meeting each other, 
for meeting this life. Body as body directly through sensation. Not even what I think about sensation or whether I like sensation, but as that immediate expression of embodied life. Thank you. So I think maybe just two things to finish. There was a question about earth element, right? The solidity and the stability of earth element and the function of action, fluidity, aliveness, movement. Right. There was a question about how to look at those together. There was, um, yes, a few more questions, and I'm, I would like to, to read you a couple of things um, that I think speak to some of these other questions that are um, about action in life, coming into action, life as a meeting place, um, and body as body. And actually, first I want to read you just the last piece that I heard last week. Actually, before I came here, I was having a Skype meeting with somebody who, someone who some of you know very well um, from New York, uh, Gina Sharp, who I'm um, uh, humbled and grateful to count now as one of my friends. And we meet on Skype, um, not infrequently, and discuss our practice together and um, holding within the sati. I, lo- I loved what Akinchino said this morning about that sati that can hold the wider picture, right? The wider picture of walking around the hall, right? So there's the sati, the mindfulness that can hold this body moving and can hold the sense of the whole. And where that can go, what levels of this life, what levels of this life, inner and outer, can we hold in our practice of awakening and in our practice of meeting? So I'll tell you what she told me in a sec. And... So a couple of things. What I remember when I was practicing in the Zen tradition, as I told you the other day, um, one of the teachers talked about an old a story, or I think it may have been from an old text, and he said the Zen student came to the Zen master and said, um, what was the Buddha teaching during her lifetime? And the Zen master replied, an appropriate response, Period. that the action that came from the awakened heart, the action that comes from your awakening hearts and our awakening moments is more free, isn't it? It's more able to meet the situation than when we're feeling a little more locked or contracted or when it's all about me, right? When we include us and we include more and more levels of experience, we work our material, we do our work, the heart, the heart-mind is more free to respond. 
one way I like to think of a Buddha or an awakened, awakening, awakened heart is that this, this chitta we've been talking about, this heart-mind, has clarified. It's got clearer. It's um, not dependent so much on the contacts or the lack of contacts, externally or internally. (coughs) And therefore, coming to the meeting, which the Buddha is doing moment to moment to moment, meeting with others, meeting themselves, meeting the world, that heart-mind is free to respond to what's needed. This is a remarkable offering in the world, and this is where our practice is heading. This is where we're heading. So what she told me as we were holding in this discussion our love of the depth, our love of the silence, our love of the world, we were holding issues of racism, of climate change, of injustice, of love, of beauty. We were holding those in the field together. And she told me another quote from Joseph Campbell. I'd like to offer this to you tonight. So the sati, not jumping on each of those issues, but holding them, resonating, feeling what is an appropriate response moment to moment to moment. And he said, the first step to the knowledge and the wonder and mystery of life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly realm as well as its glory. The monstrous nature as well as the glory. Those who think they know how the universe could have been had they created it, without pain, without sorrow, without time, without death, are unfit for illumination. (laughs) Right? Sounds a little unfit. We could change the word there, couldn't it? But I think what it's pointing to, actually, if you hold it, is another way that's spoken about is holding the thousand joys and the thousand sorrows. If we want just all of that, we are making a division in our heart. If we go just to all of that, we never quite open to the wholeness and the mystery, actually. Something about standing at the meeting place of inner and outer of horror and of beauty, of any other things we hold in opposition. What do you hold in opposition? Sometimes we can't imagine a heart that holds tenderness and strength at the same time. Or, as many people have been asking actually, how to be in relationship with each other without just merging, right? How to love and be with each other without just kind of falling into a pot, a soup that's not clear, that has no clarity in it. So how to have that merging and how to have that upright vertical, I'm here and you're there. Mm 
And on a very deep level, there's absolutely, you are myself in another form. And I'm here. And you're there. And this way we can resonate along with each other, not looking out from two lofty towers like this is the best we can do. But the mystery deepens and deepens as our capacity to hold ourself strengthens. Holding what seem like counter opposites is the place where we wake up, is where the illumination, so we're fit, fit for illumination. I'm not fixating on the sorrow nor the joy. The awakening can touch and embrace each particular without fixating, but can hold it in the wider frame. And actually leaves more room for response. So this is how I understand our practice of body as body, which is the grounding, the tool, the marvelous material for that. And I think Yenai told me he shared with some people the other day, and he said, I hope it was all right. And it was actually one of my experiences some, some years ago in my practice when I was having a very, very hard time. And I said to my teacher, it's enough. I can't do it. I've had enough. I can't, it's too much being in this body, trembling along with what's here and the world. Don't want this body. And he said, you know, it's seven to nine times more difficult to do this practice without a body. <laughs> so how does he know that? Where did he get that information from? <laughs> like, where have you been? All right. So while we know what's down and what's up, or at least it looks that way while we've got one of these, let's cultivate it. Let's see what's possible for all of us together and I'll meet you there. having a discussion about whether to call it a day there or have a couple more questions. I invite you to do a few more, offer a few more. Yeah, you can have the bits of paper I haven't answered. <laughs> This is some interesting power. She's giving us the questions. <laughs> interesting, some interesting, what did you say? Power. Um, <laughs> usually one has a choice about the questions, but not always, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> and there's more that may have to do with the going home part, which we might pick up tomorrow. So you're out of it, huh? You're out of it. <laughs> <laughs> this one 
You might want to stand since I can't read this one. We didn't specifically request questions earlier. Um, they just came along through the week, and some of them we tried to answer, incorporating into what we've been teaching, and some of them. It says, "Is the ego fearful?" Oh, that's fearful. Shall I get going on this one? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, can you address the uh, dis difference between a thought and an insight, and then what to do about it? <laughs> uh, that's not difficult. So, a thought is something that buzzes between your ears, and uh, it makes a lot of noise, and it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, a thought does not transform. So, hope this works. Think of it. Think of a thought as something that is a response to a feeling, to a, that has a raw, as a raw material, material has a perception. Now, a perception is always something that holds a part of what's happening right now, generally a sensory quality to it. Something visual, something gustatory, something auditory, olfactory. And at the same time, it tries to recognize that immediate experience in terms of something already known. Yeah? So a perception is something that is both referring to something immediate, and yet it tries to understand that immediate in terms of what is already known. So it's half false and half true. The true bit is immediate, is direct, is sensory, is felt, may have affective tones. And the perception is what frames it. It puts it in a little frame. It says, ah, it's one of those. Yeah. Or it reminds me of, yeah. or it looks similar enough to one of the things I have already had some dealings with, and it was a bad experience. Yeah. So, a thought <coughs> is basically the follow-on from such perceptions. It may be valid, it may be useful, it may be in some way engendering intention that are useful, but the thought in itself is not transformative. Yeah? It doesn't make me understand more deeply. The thought's material are only partly from immediate experience. Much of it comes from experience and from the distortion that is inherent in that experience. Yeah? So I can't really trust thought. I can do very wonderful things with thought. I can ask, are you a useful thought? 
Uh, I can ask, what is your opposite? I can ask, are you a valid thought? Are you a true thought? I can imply rules to thoughts. Yeah, you can't do this with emotions. You, know, you can't apply rules to your anxieties or to your, or your, to your euphoria. But uh, with a thought, you can do such things. An insight is something very different. An insight changes something. You may have an immediate grasp. If we're speaking of classic vipassana insights, then these are not insights into the, the, not the neurotic nature of your childhood or so, but it, a classic vipassana is a profound, startling insight into the nature of transience, into the nature of conditionality and contingency, and into the nature of impersonality. In a sort of common parlance, we generally are more generous with the term insight. It may mean more. We have insight into a dynamic. Technically, this is not a vipassana, but it's still a useful insight to have understanding of a dynamic that has maybe haunted you for a number of years. So let's be generous and say an insight is something that transforms an aspect of your being. It transforms not just a perception, but it transforms how you see, how you perceive, how you understand, how you respond, how you want, and how you're afraid, things like that. It's on a deeper layer. If you're lucky, some of your thoughts string up and deepen with some stillness to an insight. Most of the thoughts pretend to be a lot more worth than they are. I hope this is a sort of from the hip attempt. Yeah. And uh, not sure if this is am I on? Not sure if this is in the rules, but I quite like that question. So, um, one thing I just want to add that I've always uh, enjoyed sharing as a as some I think Tibetan teacher once said, "Wisdom is just a wandering thought." And there's something interesting about seeing how thought reflects what's actually on the... It sort of reflects on the surface of consciousness, we could say. It's a little metaphorical, but I think it's still a useful metaphor. It seems to me that it reflects something that's happening at a deeper level in the consciousness, in the chitta. And so you can have a thought reflecting a quality of craving or greed or aversion. You can have a thought reflecting a quality of generosity, of kindness... Of wisdom and likewise insight actually sometimes arises with a thought as part of its expression so it's useful in that way I think also to understand that although they're clearly different sometimes there is a relationship between the expression of the insight that says oh it's like this and something that's happening at a deeper level that's understanding that and then expressing it in that way. And so wisdom is a wandering thought. It sometimes helps the relationship to thinking, I find. But not all of them, of course. This was written to a Kinshino, so it's interesting I got it. Um, but anyway, <laughs> he might have something to say after I have a response. Is the ego fearful of fully inhabiting the body because it knows the body will die. In one sense, there's a certain 
accuracy, I think, to what that's pointing to. The idea of the ego being afraid to inhabit the body is kind of an interesting one in itself, as if the ego was a something that had some fear about the body, which was a something else. Yeah? About inhabiting it. Absolutely. I think one of the reasons that fear arises is because the body has this very deeply wired in biological urge to survive. And the reality is that it's not going to. All these urges and programmings to keep this thing alive in the face of the reality that ultimately that will fail. That's um, one of the bases of which fear arises in experience. And um, probably, let's say, I think actually more usefully to understand what's difficult or one of the difficult aspects about inhabiting the body is that there's lots of things in the body that we can't control. And so far as our sort of egoic structure or the sense of self which has this idea that it is or it owns or it should control the body all of which are actually somewhat erroneous and unfortunate misunderstandings that sense of ownership of or attempt to control the body actually fails it doesn't actually bear out in our experience because we can't and so there's a tendency to sort of move away from the bodily experience, which is not just difficult to control, but at times, as we've spoken about, quite uncomfortable, quite challenging, quite scary to inhabit, because it's either painful or un not in our control or both. And so there's a movement out of the body towards the cerebral processes, the thinking activity, which creates something of an illusion of control and ownership through the patterns and the ideas and the images we create that are not actually in relationship to the immediacy, the actuality of our bodily experience. So at one level, not inhabiting the body is because it's a challenging place to be. And that's scary to something that wants to be in control. Though, of course, what happens as we start to inhabit it more fully we start to understand that, in fact, control is not actually what's needed. It's the capacity to handle the experience, to be able to hold both the particularities and the broader field of bodily experience. And then it ceases to be so fearful. The sense of ego is somehow separate from the body is something of a misunderstanding. Because so much of what is the core of the way that structure that we call in some frameworks ego, or we might say sense of self or personality, it configures around some very primary biophysical um, response patterns that then become amplified. And we've kind of pointed to some of these. I think, again, should I mention the amoeba and its withdrawal from the chemical soup that was slightly less um, healthy for it. That's the beginning of fear. That's the beginning of pulling away. Not just that it's going to die, because in fact, we don't have a clue at a real level what that means. We just have a sense that it might not be something we quite want to inhabit. So that's a little bit part of it, but I think it's somewhat more immediate as to why it's hard for us to inhabit the body. 
but what's really important there is the sense of in being closer to and coming close to the body. We find that something shifts. So rather than being a place that's hard to inhabit, it actually starts to become something that invites us to inhabit it. That the sense of of the of the heart, mind, the chitta, actually settling more deeply into the body. And this is part of what of what samatha offers us is that there's a as the Buddha described it, a pleasant abiding here and now. And he, he spoke of the quality of the unified heart-mind in the body as a pleasant abiding here and now, something available to us, and also as a blameless pleasure, as something that's actually wholesome, unharmful, non-destructive or damaging, that is actually nourishing and vitalizing and refreshing to the um to the heart, to the mind, and to the body too. <coughs> and so the fact that it isn't forever does not actually present any fundamental or ultimate obstacle to it being an abiding place for us, or a meeting place, as Catherine was speaking just now. It's this place where, in a way, we could say the dichotomy of mind and body, of form and spirit, and those artificial separations that we create in our in our um our thinking, which tends to create conceptual oppositions as a way of distinguishing one thing from another, which isn't fundamentally so. And that meeting the meeting of the mind and the body actually reveals more than a meeting of two separate things, but actually a unifying or the the unifying Nature, the unified nature of the different expressions actually coming together. And that's, I think maybe that's my response. Any life questions? One or two? Good. We're done, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, on the simplest level, taking refuge to the Dhamma means you acknowledge your own intelligence and capacity to understand the principles that underpin your phenomenal experience. Um, if you not just understand, but bring yourself in alignment with these principles, your chances for happiness are substantially increased. Yeah. So... These refugees are affirmations of your own competence. Uh, You will probably know that most of the doubt we experience is doubt in our own capacity. That's the most devastating form of doubt. That I do not actually trust, that I am capable of learning, capable of holding truth, capable of acting, capable of growing, capable of letting go, capable of... uh, 
coming out of unhealthy patterns. So taking refuge means I allow myself to alignment, to a, a profound alignment with forces that underpin the reality as I experience it, as I perceive it, and as I uh, r resonate with it. The Dhamma is unsurpassable because in some way, the, you know, the, the Dhamma is a, is a logos. Yeah? It's the, the principles that underpin the, the world as we experience it. And the Dhamma is also um, an attempt of a, an awakened being to, uh, in a nutshell, to teach us what is most necessary to overcome uh, our mortality to overcome uh, patterns of uh, pain-avoiding uh, pain and happiness-seeking. And the Dhamma is insofar insurpassable as it is, in a nutshell, the kit that helps you survive best under conditions that are tempting and painful. Yeah. So it, it is the condensed version of what you need to become a free and whole and happy human being. Yeah. I could expound on this a little bit. I suspect this is sufficient for the moment. Please. Yes, please, Stephen. The second part I didn't quite catch. The first part. Good. I'll deal with the first part, and Jana deals with the second part. <laughs> as far as I understand the teaching in the suttas, realization is possible without jhanas to a certain degree, but for complete enlightenment, uh, jhanic experience is necessary. That is my understanding of the scriptural teachings. Yeah. Whether you are a monk or not a monk does not matter. Uh, there have been, irrespective that Theravada tradition claims the opposite, later on uh, there have been awakened beings uh, that were not monastics. Yes, yeah, so jhanas are what are described, we've referred to as absorptions. The Buddha taught a uh, series of practices that lead to deepening degrees, states and experiences of samadhi that he learned from um, his, I guess we could say, Vedic teachers prior to his uh, enlightenment. And uh, we may have a different view on the interpretation of the suttas. There's different takes that one can encounter in different places and it's spoken of in... Uh, the tradition that there was also the uh, potential for awakening without the development of jhana. And uh, clearly it's not spoken of as such directly in the Satipatthana Sutta. So there's a 
you know, there's an interesting um, divergence of view, uh, and uh, perhaps if someone gets there with or without who can report to us, that would be great to know. Um, but there is a divergence of view, and in, in some of the, it might be more commentarial, and I don't profess to have a firm view or opinion on the final answer, but in terms of what's spoken about, sometimes there's the, the speaking of those who attained uh, a full awakening on the basis of dry insight, without, um, that's sometimes how it was translated in the old Pali, um, the first translations that I encountered, and uh, it's an interesting framing of it. Um, but uh, there are difference of, di- differences of view, it seems. And uh, as I said, uh, anyone who's there, I'd be happy to hear the report. Apart from that, we're a little bit in the realm of potential speculation and different teachers have different views, which is fine. But they are views, I find. And uh, At times in the Vipassana tradition, there was a very strong rejection of the development of jhana, of absorption. And it was part of the, uh, the movement whereby this whole teaching and practice started to become offered to lay people and done outside of a monastic context because those developments, in most models and schools, they not all involve considerably extended periods of intense and focused practice. And that wasn't something available to lay people. So part of the whole growth of the insight tradition came out of a sense of actually certain monastic lineages and teachers recognized, oh, maybe you don't need. And in fact, they would have said, you don't need to have developed those jhanas in order to have transformative and liberating insight. And therefore, we can do this on a retreat of a few weeks or months rather than signing up for a a lifetime of monastic practice or non-monastic practice. As to the second question, um, it's hard to know exactly what we mean when we say in casual language an enlightened being. There are teachings, practices and practitioners of this process of awakening that fall outside of what we'd call classical Buddha Dharma. It's pretty clear to me that some of the teachings I've read from both historical figures outside of the Buddha Dharma and from teachers alive today, have some profound realization that they don't articulate in terms of what is our classical framework, but that they clearly articulate something that is liberating and beautiful, that is noble and compassionate. And so I'm in favor of that in whatever flavor it appears. I'm pretty sure they've appeared in different shapes and frameworks within traditions and outside of traditions of all the things that we know and recognize. And the Buddha seems very liberal. He says, you know, every teaching that has an eightfold path is a teaching that can lead to liberation. Yeah. 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 So if you have a teaching that comprises, if you look at the differing tiers in that eightfold or Eight track is maybe a better translation path. If you think of the differing tracks, you you run uh, on all of them together. Yeah, it's not one. It's not a sequential process. But if you have a 
a, a teaching in the development that comprises these components that are referred to in the Eightfold Path. And he says that it is possible to have freedom and liberation in there. Mm. That's a very liberal statement. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And kind of in the territory of the reflection about sort of paths and teachers, there's a what I found a very refreshing encounter that takes place at one point, one point in the in the suttas between Ananda, who's the you know the uh, beloved disciple attendant, and I think second or third cousin of the Buddha, and who remembered many of his teachings that enabled them to be ultimately recorded. And he he comes to the Buddha. I'm pretty sure it was Ananda. And he says something along the lines of, Oh Lord, your teachings are the greatest teachings there were. You are the greatest, most enlightened Buddha there ever was. Wow, this is amazing. And the Buddha says to him, Well, Ananda, have you met all the other Buddhas? (laughs) To know how good their teachings were, how enlightened those Buddhas were, in order to say that they are lesser enlightened than myself. It's the gist of the conversation. And of course, Ananda has to say, well, well, no, I haven't. So he says, so how can you proclaim that I am the most greatest Buddha there ever was, or my teaching is the most greatest teaching there ever was? And I think it's a really powerful sort of addressing of that tendency to want to make one's own teaching, i.e. in the broad sense, Buddha Dharma, or in the particular sense, the tradition that's working and doing it for me, into the best and the greatest. I find it very useful to contemplate the fact that no one I know has tried all the different ways, practiced all the different teachers, even within Buddhism, let, let alone beyond that, to really be able to say, this one's the best. What we can know and what we can say is this one works, and we know that. We don't need to try all the other ones to know that. And other ones, they can work too, and blessings upon them if they work for others, as this has worked for me or for us. I'm on. So, a couple of things. We thought we'd end this part of the evening with um, chanting the chant that we've been doing in the late sitting. And just before we go there, to say that the last sitting tonight, please do come. It's the last night of silence together. And we'll meet back here at f- 5 to 9. So, if the bell ringer rings at 10 to. Um, I want to say a tiny bit about breakfast in the morning, but let's just check. People who want to chant have a sheet. Anybody need a sheet that doesn't have one? If you raise your hand, and anyone with spare sheets, um, one for Sunil. Do you have one? Thank you.
So tomorrow morning, um, wake up 5.30, sitting together here at 6. Breakfast is at 6.30 and it says on the schedule, which will be up when you go out, or maybe it's up already, yeah? Not in silence and guided practice. So what this means is you will be able to engage one another, practice this meeting place, not just meeting what's here, but meeting what's here and meeting what's there at the same time. This is an art, as we know. So um, do enjoy each other. Take good care of yourself, um, meaning if you find you're spinning up and it's all getting a bit fast, you can just kind of, you know, go out into the foyer for a moment. Oh, okay. All right. And as, as I understand it, Yanai will be there in the morning, maybe he needs to say, and will be um, ringing the bell from time to time to remind us to stop. Do you want to say anything about it? Some of you will be familiar with what we've done in previous years. This uh, non-silent breakfast was something that was pretty common at IMS retreats for many years, but uh, over the years it slowly dropped away from most because the volume and intensity of conversation was ultimately determined to be not actually that conducive to having breakfast <laughs> or well-being. And so as a way of kind of supporting the practice of being mindful in that time, um, I'll take the bell and uh, ring it to support pausing. We've already done a bit of practice of pausing and checking that momentum of speaking uh, earlier this afternoon. We'll have that support. So it's actually quite, a, uh, quite an interesting and enjoyable breakfast exercise that will take place at that time. Thank you. And 7.15 work period for those who have it then as normal room cleaning, that will be in silence again. Um, really supports getting the work done. And again, we, we go in and out of the silence and the speaking, and it's great for practicing that muscle. We'll see where we've gone out of ourselves. We'll be able to kind of collect again, recollect and practice that. Here I am, here you are, and here we meet. Okay, enjoy it. And you can duck out to the foyer if you need to from time to time. Okay, and then we meet back here at 8.30 and we'll have a, a chunk of time where we will um, sit and we will take care of endings and um, have an ending. I don't know, what does it say here? Closing. And we'll have a close ending and closing of the course at that time. Retreat will end at 11 and it will continue on from there. So we'll say more in the morning. Okay. Pita Tatta <laughs> Pama 